Rear Admiral Pete Pettigrew, callsign Viper, served in the U.S. Navy from 1964 to 1998, completing 325 combat missions and 529 carrier landings along the way. In one of his bios, he says, quote, I am the only former Top Gun instructor with a confirmed kill, end quote. A MiG-21 over Vietnam on May 6, 1972. He's also highly decorated, having received the Silver Star, the Distinguished Flying Cross, three air medals, and 30 Strike Flight air medals for his service. Pete was technical advisor on the first Top Gun movie and designed a number of the flying scenes, including the whole scenario leading to Goose's death. Today, Dad and I chatted with him about his wild career, and I sat back while they compared notes about the F-4 and life as fighter pilots. Well, I'll show you, I'll show you a picture of me with my Phantom. Let's see, I got a figure. Nice. There it is. There it is. Sweet. Sweet. Let me... Uh... Oh, yeah, we should compare uh, Phantom photos. That's awesome, by the way. At this picture, like... you know where this picture was taken? It was is taken this North Island? Yokosuka, Japan. That's Whoa. The, that's the hill just across from the, from the pier at Yokosuka, Japan. Nice. Yeah, I was, yeah, I don't have a phantom picture in my office. I only have the eagle picture. You got a T-38 over, over there. Yeah, I was, was going to say. T-38? Yeah, I got my T-38. I've actually got time in a T-38. Yeah, I've got a few things floating around the office. Oh, and how about this? I've got a 20 millimeter barrel up there on the wall. Can you see that one? That's, that's, from, a, that's yeah. a, from a Vulcan. Yeah, that's from the yeah, M61. M61, yeah. yeah. So. I didn't have a gun. <laughs> oh yeah we got to talk about this okay uh, actually you yes. flew, you flew photo f4s, f4s I did. didn't you i did so you didn't have a gun either I didn't. I, no i had nothing but speed no speed you were right. unarmed and unafraid i'm unafraid but we were we were fast we could outrun any just anybody we could light them up and just hit the mark it was it was yeah, a, yeah. it was a very clean. clean machine yeah well you you wore usually had wing tanks didn't you we did but uh, you could dump we, them you could get rid of them quick we could always get rid of those but it was and, then, and you got the, you got the extra long nose yeah <laughs> you can really you can really scoot and we could we could scoot that was my thing i did outrun a lot of jets in the uh and i didn't you know i I understand you did combat time in Vietnam and multiple tours. I did none of that, but my, uh, so my, my big thing was red flag. That was our exercise. I've done a couple of red flags as the adversary, as the adversary. Like, like an aggressor. Yeah. 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 Wow. But very cool. We, you know, he, he was talking about his photo runs. We used to chase, RA-5Cs. Now there is an airplane that's fast. Dad and I saw it on the deck, on the deck of the Midway. Oh yeah, well, it carried all sorts of gas. That they would they would run us out of gas in in in, in about forty five minutes on a on a on a photo run. It was a that was a really really fast machine. 
and a lot of them, but a lot of them got shot down. I had a, I had a really good friend of mine get shot down. I, I wasn't chasing him, but, uh, but he, he got shot down and captured. And uh, I asked him when he got back from, from, from the Hanoi Hilton after the war was over, I ran into him and I uh, asked him what was the last thing he saw on the clock before he, before he had to eject. He was making a, a photo run over Fan I think, at about uh, 3,500 feet. And they used to, they used to do their, their runs at 600 indicated. And, and he, uh, he had taken the photos and then he felt a, a, a jar, you know, a, a thump. And then the, the stick went, you know, went limp in his hand. And, and I said, well, what was the last thing you saw on the clock before you jumped out? And he said, 6.30 indicated. And I thought, ouch, yeah. <laughs> that would really hurt. Oh, God. Yeah. So he didn't, didn't remember the first two days he was captured. They beat the shit out of him. But, you know, he didn't know whether they should beat the shit out of him or whether it was just the ejection that did it. But oh, uh, he was a real good guy, a guy named Ron Polfer. Wow. Yeah. The Q, the Q, Nick, at 630 knots is the wind blast when you, when you, when you eject is just unbelievable. Hey, I got to imagine it would like break your arms and stuff. And it, I well, it, it, the RA-5C had a very interesting ejection seat. It was a, a North American seat and they actually wore special gloves that were attached so that so that if you ejected when you pulled the curtain it pulled your arms in across your chest like that so that so that you didn't flail so uh it was a pretty good ejection seat at least at high at high speed it worked pretty good was he do you remember if he was in one piece when he when he hit the ground or was he all banged up and well he was really banged up yeah, yeah. he didn't break anything though i mean he wow he was basically just really badly bruised. Right. Oh, man, I can't even believe that. Well, um, I, I figure I'll play kind of the role of moderator here and, and okay. mostly just let you, you two old fogies uh, uh, talk it out. And <laughs> but um, I, what first question I had, though, actually, was just because I'm on Alameda, you know, and you were, you were talking about this earlier. Uh, I have been filming a ton uh, at the old NAS Alameda because it's yeah. mostly still intact. I mean, it's kind of falling apart, but it's still there. It is falling apart. Runway you... falling apart too. I used yeah. to fly in and out of there uh, in a in a Phantom. It's only eight thousand feet of runway, so you got to be a little careful. But uh, uh, our air wing commander, his air wing was the staff was there. And they had get-togethers and meetings and stuff. And I used to go up there. Uh, and I, you know where Coast Guard Island is, right? Yeah, right next to you. Right. We were, I was based there for a while in, in the in the reserve. I had a. Um, I was head of actually Scott. You'll be interested in this. My job was I was the uh, <clears throat> the uh, what do they call it. Uh, well, I basically owned the Aleutian Islands for the Navy. 
I, I was the head of all the, of the area around the Aleutian Islands, of the def Mardes, the defense of the Aleutian Islands. And, uh, and so when we weren't up in, in ADAC, we were, were in Alameda. So like once a month or twice a month, I had to go up to Alameda and talk to my folks. But uh, it was interesting. Were you, wow. Scott, were you ever based in, in, uh, in, in Alaska? Anchorage. In fact, Nick and his sister were both born at Elmendorf Air Base in Anchorage. Yeah, I know it well. Yeah, so we, uh, we spent four years there, and that was a, a fabulous tour. We just, the, the uh, opportunities for training and flying and, and, yeah, it's and a, there. It's a cool place. It really is. Yeah, and fishing in the summer and skiing in the winter. We, we made the best of it. We had a great tour there. That was where Dad uh, transitioned to the F-15. Or, uh, or I'm sorry, did that happen actually a little earlier? Well, I transitioned to Luke. That was the training right. base and was stationed. Where, where did you, where did you go to flight training? Del Rio, Texas, off uh, base. Yeah. So, uh, what a miserable place that is. Where'd you Where'd you get your your degree? University of Utah in Salt Lake City. That's so. I'm I'm back. In fact, Nick got he went there as well. He's uh, and um, but yeah. So I'm back in Salt Lake now. Uh, so we got we've got a lot of roots in the Utah area and roots in the mountains here. Yeah. Are you Mormon? Uh, well, no longer. Oh. <laughs> it's probably the best way to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. As, as he takes a sip of wine. So there's your cue, Pete. Um, <laughs> I, should, yeah. I should have brought mine down. Yeah. So by the I way, had... I'm drinking. I don't know if you can see this, but because uh, the well, I have like a blur effect yeah, on, yeah. but this is this is a faction uh, beer. Faction is now based in one of the hangars at NAS Alameda, and oh. it's right next to the flight line. Oh, um, which is, which is pretty cool. So anyway, so I, 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 I got this cause I knew we'd be talking and then it would be like a thing I could bring up. So <laughs> I have, um, I was a Sigma Chi at Stanford and, uh, I had a, the, the, almost half the fraternity was Mormon. Most, about half of them were Jack Mormons <laughs> and the other, we had some other pretty strict Mormons too. And I, 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 I became sort of attached to the to the Mormon religion. I'm a, I was raised a Catholic, and uh, and the Mormon Mormon families are are really strong, and, and they're and and when you're when you're younger, you, you and you see these guys, and they're all really really good guys. And I I thought you know it's probably a pretty good religion, really family oriented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Pete, I have I have a very important question right off the bat. Um, this because this is something I, I I haven't I you know dad dad uh, doesn't have uh, experience with in particular. Um, what was it like getting shot off a cat for the first time, and how the hell do you even prepare for that? Well, <clears throat> number one, it's kind of fun during the day, and. Um, and you don't prepare for it. the The first time you first time you get catapulted is in the training command, and they basically tell you, you know, make sure your head's back 
and you're and you're tightened down and uh make sure your head's in the headrest because if it isn't when they fire the cat it will be and you'll be and don't turn your head sideways because you'll get a wrench neck um and it, it it's it, it's not the same at night because you can't see anything at night so I didn't like them very much at night. During the day, they're kind of fun. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, the first one, they, they, all the practicing you do to get ready for the ship to go Caracol, you do in basic training. And then <clears throat> just before you go to advance, you go back to Pensacola and you go through what's called FCLP, Field Carrier Landing Practice where you learn how to fly the ball and make good passes to the ship. And then when they think you're ready, they take you out to the ship and then they, uh, and then you, you get your, your first, you do two touch and goes, and then you get, I, I think it's four arrested landings. And they, they really don't prepare you very much. They, you know, they give you a little brief on it and then they say, enjoy the ride. And it's basically like, from what I understand, you, when you're landing, you you don't flare at all. You just drive the nose down into the no, no into flare the at all. And and is it? Do you feel like an enormous impact? I know the gearing no, systems that, on. Well, at the field, you know, we don't. <clears throat> at the field, we flare, mm -hmm. but uh, <clears throat> we fly just like the Air Force <laughs> at the field. But. Um, uh, <clears throat> You know, they, they sort of change some things <clears throat> when you when you start practicing for landing the carrier. <clears throat> you, you, when you, you don't touch down, you just you have a constant rate of descent all the way to touchdown. And as soon as you touch down, you go to full power because you you got to be able to, to bolt go what's around. called bolt or, or if you miss a wire or something, you got to be able to get enough power up to to be able to get your flying speed so that you can go around. It's called a boulder. And boulder. Uh, you get, and you practice that all the time. But uh, yeah, uh, you, you, get, you, you get used to it all. In fact, there are a lot of advantages to flying off a carrier. <clears throat> and it, it's because it's a lot, one of the great things about it is when you come back to the carrier and you're flying off the carrier, you always get the same presentation <clears throat> unless you go to the wrong carrier, which has been known to happen on occasion. But um, it never happened to me. But, you know, you, when, during the war, we had like four carriers all in the North, North Tonkin Gulf. And so you, you had to really look at the number when you came down to, to come in to land to, to make sure you had the right ship uh, <clears throat> and uh, what was I going to say oh yeah they, I was talking about what the presentation you get is always the same you come around and you just and you see the carrier and you and you trap and you don't taxi much so there's a guy that taxis you out so you don't have to worry about you know, where the runway is <clears throat> or where the taxiways are or where you're going to park because they're going to do that all for you. Right. Uh, they're they're going to, 
all you do all you do after you t after you land and you come after you, the, you come back on the power <clears throat> is you fold the wings raise the flaps raise the hook and then a, a guy taxis you out of the gear and taxis you usually up to the bow turns you around and then you just shut down and you're done wow so it's kind of nice that way it's, it's it simplifies things once you get used to the rules gotcha and this is like a super basic question but i've always wondered it because you know i see you know you, you only see basically angle deck carriers these days what do they do so i mean i know that a lot of the trapping happens on the angle is what i have understood yeah. it only uh, yeah. or only happens on the angle and and so what do they use so the cat have does cat happen off the front or you know and, and the traps there, happen off uh, the angle most the modern carriers have two catapults one on the port side forward at the bow but right. they they extend they extend back quite a bit <clears throat> um they're 200 feet long no 250 feet long <clears throat> and they're two on the bow and two on the angle. The ones on the angle, they can't use while they're landing airplanes, but, right. they, but they normally will launch 16 to 20 airplanes. And then th those airplanes go out, do their mission, come back about an hour and a half later, orbit the ship getting ready to land. And then they <clears throat> launch 16 to 20 more airplanes. And as soon as they get airplanes, they land the airplanes that are airborne. <clears throat> And, and that's called a cycle. And they mm. do like seven or eight cycles per day. And wow. So when, when you're on deployment, uh, you're, you're doing eight cycles a day every day for like six months or so? And any given pilot's probably not going to fly more than once a day. And in mm. combat, you really don't have time because <clears throat> you, you, you got you to brief like two and a half hours before you're going to fly and then you're going to fly for two hours then you got to debrief for about an hour and a half and, and then you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna do what's called a spare we spare each of our launches so some usually spare which means you have to go to another brief but you just don't fly in, in other words if they're going to launch four airplanes they man five because, because they want to try to get four out. And so right. four out of five is pretty good. So normally a spare won't launch, but he'll start, he'll taxi up like he, like he might launch. And then if nobody goes down and the other four airplanes launch, then they just taxi him up to the bow and shut him down. So that's another hour and a half or so then if you're a fighter guy, you're going to have at least one two-hour alert five. <clears throat> and an alert five, you have to be in the cockpit, strapped in for two hours, <clears throat> and, you, and, you, and you're on a five-minute alert. In other words, from the time they hit the airplane and say, launch the alert five, you have five minutes to get airborne. Usually, usually you can make it about three so but you you do that that's that's a that's a watch you have every every day and it's so that's maybe two and a half hours just doing just 
sitting in the airplane getting ready to launch. Wow. So you end up being pretty busy. In, in fact, you never get enough sleep. During combat, I, I remember always being tired. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear, you know, they, they try to give, or at least, you know, they in the Air Force, I, I remember hearing that they try to give pilots like eight hours of rest. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine you, I mean, you didn't get I never rest. got more than about four or five hours at oh a time. I, I took naps every now and again. But, but <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was pretty rare that you get eight, eight hours at the same, all at once. Wow. And you're doing that for, I mean, so during your combat time, you were, you were, doing that for how, how long would you say well, like how, you do how, it for maybe 35 days and wow, then you then four you hours go, of sleep then you, then you go into port for a, a week and then you go back out but when it got hot and heavy i did 56 days on the line one time and i think we did about 45 another couple of times so yeah you were you were working pretty hard well i have one for for, for uh, Scott, oh, do you still fly? No, I really don't. I've, I've been up in a couple airplanes for fun recently, but no, Nick's actually more current than I am by far. <laughs> <laughs> I just went, actually, I went, I went flying last week uh, just uh, with, with, yeah, my buddy. You're, you, he, Scott, he's, he's, he's got enough flight time to be dangerous. He does. <laughs> 100 hours. Yeah, you know, I'm pretty dangerous. You know, I got a got 108 hours in Cessna 172s. You know, you and you and JFK <laughs> Jr. <laughs> right. No, I'll try, I'm trying not to be him. Um, but yeah. Um, well, so so Pete, what I was going to ask you earlier, because uh, we were sort of starting to kind of segue that direction, um, could you tell us a little bit about how you got, or basically what what brought you to 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 Vietnam, and if you could explain sort of the you know what what happened there i mean there's there's some there's some fa fairly significant events that that happened in vietnam during your career um and and that you partook in you know i, I was wondering if you could maybe uh talk a little bit about that <clears throat> well you, you know most first of all Viet vietnam is interesting in that when i first got there it was early not early 67 it was like july or august of 67 and the war <clears throat> had become pretty hot. So my first mission, combat mission, because you've, you've done all this training and everything and you, you haven't really thought about the fact that you're, you're gonna actually get shot at. And then all of a sudden there you are in the Tonkin Gulf and they're launching you off the front end and saying, you know, don't get killed. So the first mission we did that I remember I did over South Vietnam. So they gave us one look at it. And I, I just remember going in and thinking that as soon as I got feet, feet dry, that the, 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 they were all the stuff was gonna come up and I was gonna be blown out of the sky. And it, it's not like that. It's South Vietnam was pretty calm in those days. Second mission was to the to route pack one which was down near the border with south vietnam and i did and i did about and then you that's the first time i got shot at remember getting shot at but 
you know, I, I would just stay up at around 15, 16,000 feet. The rules were, <clears throat> and you learn them pretty quick, stay fast, stay pretty high, don't go below about 5,000 feet if you can help it. So 15,000 was sort of where I like to be. But you want to vary, it's called jinking. So you want to <clears throat> change, yeah, in three dimensions. A lot of people just go back and forth, back and forth. But you, what you got to do is you got to go left, up, left again, up, right, down. You know, you had to be, try to be fairly random with it. <clears throat> because if you were very predictable at all, uh, the, those guys knew how to shoot. And you, you, and ground fire was what was going to most likely way you were going to get shot down. Oh, just like, 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 uh, 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 trip, triple A basically. Yeah. It's all triple A. There was basically 23 millimeter, which if you were up at 15, 16,000 feet, you, you wouldn't get hit with it. 37 millimeter, uh, which were white puffs. Uh, and that was called 3757. They were both white puffs, 50, 57 millimeters, a little bigger. And then 85 were black puffs, and they were pretty big. And then there were SAMs, <clears throat> but we really didn't have a whole lot of SAMs when we first got there. But within about a month, <clears throat> North Vietnam got a bunch of surface air missiles. And from that time on, we had to worry about SAMs. And predominantly the SA-2 at that yeah, time? Yeah, it was all SA-2s, yeah. And those, sorry, and, and I don't know my SAMs super well, but I think, <laughs> so SA-2, I mean, that's, is that your standard, like, telephone pole size? Yep, yep. Like, truck it was launch? A, um, it, it, had, it had a booster rocket, so when they, it, when they launched one or two, <clears throat> it, it would make a big dust on the ground. So you, 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 one of the things you really needed to do was know where all this active SAM sites were. And then, and then you had to pick a way into wherever you were gonna go that, that where you weren't gonna get hit by, from two different sides by, surf, by surface air missiles. So one of the things I learned to do, and my radar intercept officer was good at it too, was that early in the morning, I'd go, in, I'd go into intelligence and uh, or strike, call it strike, go in there and, and you could check out and find out what SAM sites had been firing that, that morning. Because that meant, because there were, there were service air missile sites all over, but all of them weren't manned at any given time. And they moved them around a lot. Right. So what you want to know is, you know, what's going on today. Right. And the more you knew, the more you could avoid putting yourself in a situation where a SAM could be fired at you. And then you went through a whole nother thing when if one got fired at you, uh, there was a whole nother technique for avoiding them. Right. But that and, would... and... go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. This is the, the nature of Zoom. It's like a little tiny bit of lag. Um, but uh, what I was going to ask was, um, so, I mean, you, you were trying to weave in here, avoiding SAMs, 
Yeah. And you're, the targets that they would assign you are, are you, so you're primarily striking, I assume. And, and well, are you carrying bombs? Right. Or rockets. Um, but uh, um, and yeah, would we, they give you? Get, sometimes we did rogue recce's. Sometimes we had stripes. I I've got about four, probably four times I bombed the Thanwa Bridge, which was very famous. And if you went to the Thanwa Bridge, you knew you were going to get your ass shot off. Mm. It was a there was the Nam Din railroad yards, and you knew you were going to shot at. It was Vin Airfield. You knew you were going to get shot at. By Thong Airfield, you knew you get shot at. And you knew where they all were. And you, you just tried to stay in a, in a more passive uh, area of the country. And you went in, you did your job, and then you came out. So you were usually only over enemy territory for maybe uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Wow. And then and the rest of it was getting to to the beach and and from the beach right and i don't know what modern tactics look like but i i have to imagine that uh there's there's a big emphasis placed on seed these days i ha i have to think with all the stealth uh capabilities and, and and things like that i mean uh was there an active kind of seed role like suppression of any enemy air defense role uh, <clears throat> yeah that that, we didn't do that though we didn't have the equipment for it right we did there were a7s and a6s that we had that carried anti-radiation missiles and then, and they protected us pretty well but right. uh, but but sometimes you still went in and and you weren't really being protected because they didn't have this they didn't have the protection at, at that time or that so time it day or something Right, and the, the wild weasel was the, were the wild weasels an air air force? That was air force. Uh, right. Okay, sorry, I just double checked. They were originally one hundred fives. Yeah, and say uh, and one hundreds, and then uh, and then I think they got they had F fours that did some later on because yeah. the yeah. the one hundred fives all got shot down. <laughs> yeah, the F four did that mission for a number of years in the air force. So we didn't do that. We did, uh, in 67, we did a lot of strike. 68, we did, our strike was a lot of times flak suppress, which we, we actually called it flak absorbing. <laughs> your job was to you go in with the strike group and then uh, go out in front of them just before you got to the target because we could accelerate ahead of them. And then look for flak sites that were shooting, and then roll in on the flak sites so that the attack airplanes would have clear runs to the target. We did a lot of that. Yeah, we called it. We we called it. It was called it a tar cap, which tar cap was you go to this target and then orbit and uh, and and try to protect the strike group from any kind of adversary that might be in the area. We did some of that. <clears throat> in 72, we did quite a bit of uh, mid-cap, which was we'd go in as a flight of two, be assigned a controller, 
<clears throat> that was usually a cruiser or a destroyer that was off the coast and go in and, uh, <clears throat> and go to a certain area. So if you have the strike group coming in, we, we would go further north trying to protect anything coming out of uh, like Hanoi, like uh, uh, Cap Airfield. Cap Airfield had a bunch of MiG-21s right. and some MiG-17s. Was and, the 21 uh, your, your primary adversary, would you say? Uh, originally in 67, there were more MiG-17s, but they kept getting MiG-21s. So by 72, <clears throat> it was probably more, more 21s than there were 17s. Well, and then this is a good uh, good segue as well to to just your you know your your story about uh, your your mid kill. Mid -kill. Um, could you yeah? Could you um, well, tell us a bit that about that? Case, in that case, it was a, a mid cap for a strike group that was going to Bifong Airfield, and we were supposed to go in <clears throat> north. And I had a a place I used to like to enter. To, to go in and it was a it was called the hourglass rivers it was it was very um it was south of hanoi about uh 50, 60 or 70 miles and it was a low area and there were two rivers that formed an hourglass and and it it didn't have a lot of it was mostly farmland and it, it didn't really have much uh, it didn't have many, didn't have any SAM sites. So I like to go in there. <clears throat> so we, I decided to take the mid cap in, in there and go to our station, but we got vectored <clears throat> right away. As soon as we came off the tanker and got, uh, <clears throat> and got vectored initially at the first vector was, we've got, uh, bogeys. Three three zero at eighty miles. But that, that, that happened as we came in feet dry, and then <clears throat> uh, we kept getting vectored, and so we we had a lot of gas, so uh, we, we were going fast. We went in, we were we were probably five hundred all the way in, and <clears throat> and there were, there were just we were a flight of two, and they kept calling. Well, they, they initially at about 60 miles called them bandits, uh, blue bandits. They said, you've got two blue, blue, blue bandits. Blue was MiG-21, bandit met he was, he was an actually bad guy. And if you, if you heard a bandit, that gave you a cleared to fire. <clears throat> I asked for a cleared to fire and they gave it to me at about 30 miles, I think. How how are they? Sorry, and, and they I assume is that is the uh, controlling destroyer. Like they had like a giant well, radar. We, the one we had was the Chicago, right? It was a Talos uh, cruiser, and uh, he was doing the controlling for us. Gotcha. What, so what were you carrying for armament at the time? The M seven had well. In, in my particular case, I had two sparrows and uh, only two sidewinders. <clears throat> we were short of sidewinders. My wingman had four sidewinders, but I only had two. So 
I, I really felt sort of underwhelmed in terms of un, underarmed, maybe. Yeah. In terms of going engaged, in, you engaged it with the radar missile first, the Sparrow first. Sparrows didn't work. Yeah. I, I had. You, I know everybody did you that. did you carry sparrows? I in my very first couple of years, we still tried. Remember that you had to tune. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we carried sparrows, and then yeah. but we quickly switched to AMRAM and got rid of. Sparrows. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, when when our our procedure was that that you that as soon as you got airborne, you'd go to standby. Um, on the 151, which was the data link yeah. to the missile. Right. <clears throat> and um, so I did that and, and, the, and, the, and the missiles tuned. You got a little green light that showed that it tuned. And so, <clears throat> so I went back to standby because I wanted to, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to go, I didn't want to turn them on because the 151, which was was the data link, had, we'd had trouble with it. It didn't last long. It would it would break about every third or fourth hop. It overheated all the time. So <clears throat> so I turned back to standby to keep the the missiles warm but not tuned. <clears throat> so uh, we tanked. And I and as we were as we were going to go feet dry, we, we armed up like you're supposed to. So I went to on with the 151, and the missiles didn't tune, which meant they were they weren't going to work. <clears throat> so that so I stayed in radar, didn't arm, and I didn't arm because I wanted I was hoping that they tune, <clears throat> and I and I. I wasn't sure whether I had an airplane that had <clears throat> that that had what were called meaningful select lights, which meant that if I armed and they weren't tuned, they wouldn't tune. <clears throat> and if I didn't arm and had the 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 the, the data link on, if if they tuned, then I would be, could actually fire a sparrow. So I hadn't armed when we went when we went feet dry. It's a long story about about switchology. <clears throat> so when we got in, we got a tally ho. <clears throat> I looked down and they're about six miles in front of us. And it turned out I look and it's not 221s, it's 421s. And they're in they're in a kind of a box four in a left-hand turn. And we're about 45 degrees off. So, <clears throat> so it doesn't sound like they saw you at that point. No, they they said later on. I talked to them about it because I went to Vietnam to, to meet the guy I shot down, and uh, and they said they claimed that they saw us about the same time. Uh, <clears throat> so my wingman, so <clears throat> we're 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 really in, in a fairly offensive position, but I, but I was pretty sure we had too much angle off to shoot. So, uh, but we're going fast, maybe 500, 525. So, <clears throat> and, and we've come down 
for about the last 20 miles slowly. And we're all in a little place called Banana Valley, which is just south of Thud Ridge. And, there, and, and these 421, they were beautiful airplanes. These 421s are just, they're just right there. So my, we, we were sort of like this. My wingman was to the right of me. And I said, let's go shoot or cover because I didn't want to split. I didn't want to go free and engaged right away because we, we had too much advantage. <clears throat> so we're in a pretty tight left-hand turn. They're maybe mile and a half ahead of us now and they're turning. And, uh, and I see a, a missile come off his air, airplane. And uh, <clears throat> this is your, your wingman? My wingman. And I thought, I don't think it's going to die because I thought it, he had too much angle off. But the missile cranks a turn and guides and takes off a piece of the tail. <clears throat> and I, so in the meantime, I had come across, across him. And so now I'm to with his right, <clears throat> maybe, but we're not very far apart. We're still maybe uh, 200 yards apart, something like that. And uh, not even a quarter of a mile. And, uh, and I thought to myself, well, I got to confirm his MiG because the MiG was still flying, but the, the MiG had fallen out of formation. <clears throat> and so I'm starting to follow him down. And, <clears throat> and all of a sudden I look and he's cranking, my wingman's cranking, a, still cranking a turn. And I'm sort of drifting off a little bit this way. And I thought to myself, I'm trying to confirm his MiG and he's trying to shoot down my MiG. Fuck him. He can confirm his own MiG. So, so I had sort of dove to the six o'clock of the lead. <clears throat> and so I put like nine and a half G's on the airplane, overstressed the shit out of it. <clears throat> and and coming hard left. And all of a sudden I realize I'm closing on my heck of a lot. And, and I'm and I'm getting to be almost at dead six. In the meantime, the, the first two mid-21s are still in a really hard turn, but the whole fight is turning into them and they, they can't get into firing position. They're still like 90 degrees away. So, so my wingman fires two more missiles. I remember them coming off that didn't guide. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> and, and then all of a sudden I realized when I got around the corner that I'm dead six on this guy and I'm still going pretty damn fast. He's probably doing 350 or something like that. And I'm probably doing 450. And, <clears throat> and I thought, oh, um, well, I don't have a tone. And I go, oh, and I go arm and sidewinder and I get a big, huge tone and squeeze the trigger. And just as I squeeze the trigger, the last missile came off my wingsman air, wingman's airplane. 
on that missile, there's half a second between my, his missile and my missile. His missile hit, sort of hits the tail a little bit, but nothing happens. <clears throat> and then my missile, because I fired it from dead six from about 2,500 feet, goes straight up the tailpipe all the way to the 17th stage of the compressor and disintegrates the airplane. But now I've got to roll off to the right a little bit because I'm going to eat him. Yeah, so little bits and pieces came down the left-hand side and he was ejecting <clears throat> on the left. <clears throat> the only thing that was left of the airplane was the cockpit. So then we just continued the turn hard into the guys that were here and met, almost met him head on and, and bugged out, called a bug out, going, getting and heading back to the beach, which we are now 70 miles in. So we had to race them out. But the MiG, the F-4 uh, at low altitude is faster than the MiG-21. <clears throat> so we came out at about 550. <clears throat> the MiG-21 is limited, I think at the time was limited to 515 knots below 10,000 feet. So anyway, we came back to the ship. Well, we tanked, came back to the ship and did a victory roll and landed and opened up the, opened up the Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do something. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, that the scene in like, you know, the latest Top Gun movie, when they get back to the deck, they crash land and then they pop out and everyone's on the deck like, yeah. Was it kind of well, like I did that? Do that. I did do yeah. that. That scene <laughs> is exactly what we saw. Know, they parked us on the angle. And and shut us shut us both down, and we climbed out, and the and all the crewmen were all came out exactly like the movie. <laughs> that was written That's an amazing story. That's an amazing story. And then we were called to the bridge, and the captain of the you know we you can't drink on a on a navy ship, you're not allowed to. So there's no alcohol on navy ships. So we went up to the bridge. And Obi Oberg, who was the skipper of the Kitty Hawk, was there and he took us back to his at sea cab and opened up his trunk and gave us a quart of pinch. Hell yeah. <laughs> which, we drank, which we drank in about half an hour, I guess. Oh, I bet. We had a big party on the ship that night. Oh, man. Which, I mean, were you just. I have to imagine you were dead tired after that too, because I imagine you are you like full adrenaline. I mean, you, you're. Yeah, I, yeah, it, you know it. It was. It, well, the, the the first thing that you get uh, when you is is this overwhelming desire after you shoot the guy down, overwhelming desire to to get back to the ship because you've got this great story to tell everybody but where you are right then 80 miles inland you can't tell it to anybody so and there's a very 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 strong feeling i gotta get back to the ship i, I gotta tell somebody this so that was a strong feeling i had one of the others one of the others was do you get buck fever sort of a little bit um 
I worked through that pretty well, but uh, I can see where people screw up switches because I had, I knew what I was doing with my switches, but I probably could have handled it quite a bit better. Luckily, it didn't affect anything. Yeah. Wow. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell of a story. It's a hell of a story. Well, so I I I know uh, you know we're getting cl- kind of close to an hour here, but I, I have to I have to ask. So Pete, so I mean, you were telling me a little bit about this over lunch, but um, you know, I just I wanted to quickly get in a little bit about Top Gun, um, you know, and and then kind of open it up uh, from there. So. Uh, really, really fast. Could you just kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, your involvement in the first Top Gun movie and, and specifically what scenes were you sort of responsible for and, and did you design? Well, I did, I did a lot of the, like the, 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 the scene where they eject, where they have to eject that in the, in the, in the screenplay, I wrote almost all of that came up with the idea and, and what, what I did was I, I went back to all the accidents I had ever seen in an F-14, even though I, I never flew the F-14, but I knew a lot about it and I had a lot of friends that flew it. And I, <clears throat> I went back to all the accidents with F-14s of which there weren't many that they had that would fit the scenario that I was being asked to write for. And that scenario was, it was a single airplane accident. Maverick had to feel responsible for the accident, but had to be, had to be vindicated by the Navy in a board action. And, and the Rio had to die. And so I just went to, back to all the accidents I knew about and basically came up with that one. And, 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 and then I discussed it for a long time over many phone calls with the writers and, that, and then they would write bits and pieces of it and then I would change it around and, and in the end that's what came out. And so, and so basically the scenario was that they're in a, they're in a turning dog fight. He's like on the other guy's six, but he crosses over the, the jet wash blows yeah. out, blows out yeah. both the engines or one of the engines, one. one of the engines. And then he enters the flat spin and then they eject and then goose hits the yeah. canopy. Yeah. And, and there was a, the, the, the accident that I had used was a friend of mine named uh, Bean Barrett up in, he lives in Encinitas. And he'd been in the gun pattern and a guy had flown right in front of him. We did the, the, you probably did the gun pattern, Scott, didn't you? I did, yes. Did you do, can you you hear me? You you didn't go against the banner at all though, did you? No, not against the banner. Can you hear me okay? I'm not lighting up Zoom. That's fine. No, yeah, yeah, Um, I can hear uh, you. We used to do it against banners and it was a squirrel cage, the regular squirrel cage with four airplanes going around and around and around. And, and in this case, Bean Barrett, the guy in front of him got sucked. And, uh, and he, he, he was going, he was going to the, to the uh, high perch and he's, he's up like this and a guy flew right in front of him, which 
flamed out one of the engines. Engines, they have 14 or nine feet apart. If you're in burner and you lose an engine, you got about three, two or three seconds to get the other engine out of burner. Otherwise, you're going to go into it. You'll go into it some sort of a spin. Right. So, uh, and then the, the canopy, there is a canopy problem. If you're in a flat spin in the F-14, they recommend that the Rio jettison the canopy, look and make sure it's, it gets out of the way before he ejects. Because the canopy can, in a flat spin, can hang up after you've jettisoned it and sit above the airplane. And that's what we tried to recreate. That he tried to jettison the canopy. He didn't have time to jettison the canopy, so he just ejected. And of course, the canopy hung up. And when he ejected, the Rio, when Goose ejects, he ejected into the canopy, knocked it out of the way. So, and Maverick ejected safely. And and that's a that was a real uh, that's a real based story. on a real accident. Um, well, so I did want to kind of open up the floor, though. Uh, so, th- I mean, those those were like kind of the main themes I wanted to to cover. I just wanted to hear a bit about you know Pete's background. Um, I've I've had I've actually had Dad on my podcast like multiple times to talk about you know his background and his stories. Um, but I did want to kind of open it up. You know, if you all had you have a podcast. Oh it, yeah, I mean it's it's not a whole lot of followers or anything like that, but I, I, I it's a for fun kind of thing. I've been on about four of them. <clears throat> I, so one of my, uh, one of my, uh, pieces of prep material that I, that I, uh, listened to right before this actually was, uh, the one you did with Jello, uh, on the fighter pilot yeah. podcast. He's a good guy. Do you know? It him? seems like it. I, I don't know him personally. I, I actually emailed him and I, you know, it was just, uh, I, I, a while ago and I was just like, Hey man, there's, like, a, hey, there's another guy that does podcasts called Mitch Bell. He lives in Dallas. He's an American pilot. He's a marine. He was a marine C one hundred and thirty pilot, and and he and Jello sometimes work together. And then there's a guy with Mitch Bell in in England someplace that that's a, a big Top Gun fan, and that was what about a month ago we did one. It was called Top Gun Days, and they had people come from all over the world to San Diego. To, to, to look at all the, you know, find all the buildings and everything where, 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 top <laughs> where the movie took place. Filmed. Yeah, the Kansas City. Dad, Dad and I, like, for example, were at Kansas City Barbecue. We, we went uh, there after we visited the Midway, um, which, oh, by the way, I, so I didn't know this uh, until we had lunch. Dad, uh, we have a picture in front of that F4 on the deck. Yeah, Pete, no. has, Pete has time in that F4. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's great. It's in my log book. Nice. Was it just like, was it just like one flight or was it, do you have like kind of multiple, multiple hours? I haven't checked. I just found it's the bureau, the bureau numbers, right. That I, that I think I was in the rag and there were a whole bunch of airplanes and I probably flew it three or four times, but I haven't checked to see. I know I flew it at least once. And I, and then I, I just tell everybody, hey, I've got, to, I've got time in that airplane. You know, that's the so other funny. one that's interesting though, is the airplane I shot down the MIG with is in, is in the boneyard in Tucson. Oh, wow. oh no way. Wow. And, and it, and it's sitting right next to my wingman's airplane. The, the, that, that, you know, we both, we both shot down MIGs. 
And those two airplanes in the boneyard in Tucson sit right next to each other. Wow. That's got to be on purpose. That's got to be. Well, you, you know what you can do is that you can, at least I, I think I've got it someplace, is uh, Tucson, Tucson Television did a, a short segment on the fact that those two airplanes were sitting right next to each other and told the story of both of us flying together off Vietnam, off the Kitty Hawk. Oh, man, I've been trying to get into the freaking boneyard for so long. I mean, I, like as soon as I it, basically- It's not easy to get into. No, I mean, and, and they were more friendly, I guess, before COVID, but no, now it's, uh, now it's basically impossible. They don't, they don't do the tours. There are actually two, two museums. The one museum you can get into, the, to get into the back area, uh, where all the B-52s are sitting is, is harder to do. Yeah. You got you to gotta get a special deal to, to get it and have somebody take you to do it. Right. Yeah, like in a little golf cart or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, by the way, I just uh, want to just be mindful of time, but I, I know Pete, um, I, 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 and I, I was asking you a bunch of questions, but I also did want to like... Uh, uh, let you and dad just talk fighter stuff uh, and, and just sort of be a fly on the wall. Um, I know that, you know, you were saying last time we had lunch, um, you know, you just like shooting the breeze with F4 guys, you know, what, what was, uh, you know, what was kind of like the main thing, you know, that, that was, was special to you about that aircraft and, you know, that, that dad might know about. Well, he'll know all, he knows all about it. Um, He's got time in it. Scott, what did you think of it? Oh, therefore, the double ugly, it was a beast. It, it was, in, in, in my opinion, in, in a historic way, it was kind of a piece of shit. It doesn't turn, it doesn't sustain energy. It's radar systems, missile systems that you flew with. I did, but it was, they were just really limited. I, I got spoiled. I jumped to the next generation, to the F-15. The F-15 is an F-4 with everything fixed, you know, McDonald's oh, yeah, yeah. both of them and they, they tuned it and fixed it and made things work. But it was, I mean, it was a great machine to fly, but the, the cockpit layout that we had, uh, clearly very different than yours. And, and I started flying them in the eighties, uh, mid eighties. So by that point, it was, it was an old airplane. Yeah. It was an old airplane. I would, I'm born, I'm a 58 model and I was flying 58 model F4s. So, wow. you know, it was my age, it was, you know, at the time, 20, 23, 25 years old. And it was cobbled together. It had just all these little uh, devices and add-ons and sensors that we used stuck everywhere all over the cockpit. It was, it was really, an, it, it was amazing to me at the time. I was thrilled to be there. But in hindsight, it was kind of ridiculous how they cobbled it together. But it was fast. Uh, I, I I loved it. But it, it was iconic, is what it, it was. was. Iconic. But it just uh, it, it it had really served. By the time I got into it, it had it had largely served its life cycle. Um, I was in it for three years, and then I got out and switched airplanes. So I got I got a taste of it. I loved it. Um, so, uh, I met my wife and within that first couple of years of flying the F4, 
and uh, we would do a lot of, I was based in Austin, Texas. She was there uh, attending UT Austin. And I would take off and go on missions across countries. We'd go out on hops and refuel, you know, either in Louisiana or Texas or, where, or El Paso, wherever we're going. And uh, I would break about 90% of the time. The, something, the hydraulics would just spew when I landed like most of these these uh, short trips, which were supposed to be, you know, day trips out and backs, and uh, and she did not appreciate me not coming home. It was it was, it was really an issue. She got really mad at me about taking a jet off station because she knew I wasn't coming home for our date that night, and it was mostly true. But uh, but you also got to do some some hilariously amazing stuff uh during that time like like the bit mentioned the bit about the the grand canyon oh yeah so um i was bringing uh, we had deployed to red flag we're at nallis air base and i was uh, a brand new two ship flight lead and i was assigned to take myself my wingman from uh nallis back to austin texas and we didn't have quite enough fuel to go nonstop. So we, would, we were gonna stop in Albuquerque. So I had really more fuel than I needed. And we launched out of Nellis and uh, I just uh, canceled my clearance when VFR dropped down. And at the time, this was, would have been mid eighties or 85, 86, we, uh, the, you were still allowed to fly in the, at the Grand Canyon down to the rim. VFR. Uh, they've now bumped that up to like 10,000 feet. So we took two F4s and just buzzed right at the rim of the Grand Canyon. And I think within months, they they terminated that, that uh, our ability to do that. But that was a great little... Uh, I've, I've done that. <laughs> I've done that. that. I've yeah. done the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I, I didn't drop below the rim, but we just cruised the rim, and uh, and it was just one of my favorite low levels. I mean, we in that during those times we trained low level every day, so I I had a zillion low levels, but only one Grand Canyon trip. That's good. Oh yeah, you never yeah you so you no more flying. See, I I flew for the airlines for till nineteen ninety. I got out of the Navy in 98 and then I flew till 2002 in the airlines. And then I started flying Gulf streams. I flew Gulf streams for about 10 years. Wow. So I, I, I quit when I was 72. Wow. That's so impressive. I finally stood up, stood up talking to myself and said, you know, Maybe you shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I didn't. I just didn't want to get to the point where where I would uh, <clears throat> bust a check ride or a doctor would tell me you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, so I hear that. I hear that. Well, Dad may not fly as much these days, but I I have a mission. I'm on a mission at some point to get us um, into some L39s, not not maybe flying them, but with instructors or something. And uh, I hear they they run these things out of Vegas, and I'd love I've, it if Dad got, and I could just. I've got time in the L59, which is just an upgraded L39. I've got about two or three hundred hours in that. 
Wow. wow. That's a lot of time in that. How did you pick up that time? Uh, I was flying for a guy that uh, owned uh, four or five of them. And we were aggressor squadrons to fly out against the ships. And uh, he had he had four L-59s. And then he and then he sold those and went to to uh, uh, oh um, trying to Alpha jets because oh, we yeah. had that was that NATO airplane. So we then we got but it was two it was uh, two engines. So I like that better. Flew that for a while, and uh, now he bought all the Australian airplanes, Australian F-18s. Yeah, and he's building an adversary unit there. It's yeah, like adversary yeah. support. Is yeah. it like civil civilian adversary support? Or he's, he's the grands. He's the he's the grandson of um, uh, what's it? What what are the what's the card company? They, they, uh, Hallmark, Hallmark card. Oh, yeah. He's the grandson. Nice. An old, so he can, he can afford, <laughs> he can afford this hobby. <laughs> yeah. He's an old U.S. air pilot. Yeah. Kern? No. Kill, Killen? Trying to remember, trying to remember his name now. But I'm not working for him anymore, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, well Pete, um, yeah, thank sorry, you. I was gonna do do the wrap up thing, but <laughs> Pete, Pete, I seriously thank you for for talking to us, and um, you know, uh, Dad, thanks for joining as well, and you know, I'll uh, I'll circulate a, a version of this uh, oh, okay. you know, before before publishing in case you wanted to <laughs> to chop anything out or not. No, that's okay. Let it go. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Pete. Okay, good to meet you. Good night. All Take right. care. Bye-bye. Talk to I'm, you soon, guys. I'm going to check out. Bye-bye.